Welcome to the King's Table, a podcast out of Kingsville Church in Boston, where we seek to elevate the Bible over opinion, answering the questions you have. I'm your host, Jonathan Mosley. Now, as a church, we've gone through a series called By Design on marriage, sex, and singleness, and we filled in questions from our church around these topics. And so today's question is going to be answered by our pastoral associate, Kevin Anderson. And the question is, what does the Bible say about homosexuality? Enjoy. In this episode, we're looking at the question, what does the Bible teach about homosexuality? Now, I want to start by saying that this is a big conversation. Our society is regularly considering LGBTQ issues, and as such, this conversation has many rebuttals and whatabouts that are immediately attached to it. And so, I want to be honest from the start that what I hope we can do in this time is give a survey of key biblical passages that speak on the topic of homosexuality and addressing a few objections. Now, this is intended to be an overview. If it were to cover everything in its entirety, we could spend hours, if not days. But two resources that I found helpful are these. The first is, What Does the Bible Really Teach About Homosexuality? by Kevin DeYoung. And the second is this, it's, Is God Anti-Gay and Other Questions About Homosexuality, the Bible, and Same-Sex Attraction? by Sam Albury. Now, both of these are written in a very approachable manner. They're written for the average reader that's hoping to learn more, and so they would be great resources for you to go to for more information on this topic. Now, as we begin, I want to draw our attention to Genesis 2, as many discussions on marriage and sexuality begin here, and for good reason. You know, when no helper that was fit for Adam was found, God caused him to sleep, and he made from him Eve. Now, upon seeing her in verse 23, Adam immediately recognized that she was very much like him, but she was unlike him in all the right ways, too. So, the narrative in the next verse changes, though. It says in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, it says, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. The story is no longer just about these first two humans, but it's now describing all of humankind. Now, the sexual expression, the becoming of one flesh, is a deepening of this unity between the two. And there's a picture that exists here between the man and the woman becoming one. God, while he is one, is also Father, Son, and Spirit. And so there's unity within the Godhead, yet there's still distinction. In Ephesians 5, the mystery of marriage is that it represents Christ in the church. So what then about homosexual sex? While a union does exist here, certainly there's a difference. There are two parties who are different people, but yet of the same kind. Man and man, or woman and woman, is not union in the same way God is one, or that man and women are one. But let's move to the other some other passages in the Bible as well. Genesis 19 is the story of Abraham's nephew Lot living in Sodom. Now, in chapter 19, verse 1, it describes how two angels came to Sodom, and Lot greeted them at the city gate, and he took them into his home. In verse 4, all of the men of the city, and it makes clear that it's the young and the old, down to the very last man, they surrounded Lot's house. And in verse 5, they demand that Lot bring the two men out to them. And they say this is the reason that they want them to come out. It says that, that we may know them. Now, the next day, the angels told Lot to escape. And then in verse 24, he tells how the Lord destroyed the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. 
So the question that we must have to ask is, why did God destroy the city? Thankfully on this, we have two New Testament passages that we can help lean on to give us some understanding. The Apostle Peter, writing in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 6, he says, If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. So, from this analysis, we should at least learn from the examples of Sodom of activity that was ungodly. But in Jude, verse 7, we find this. It says, Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, they serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Now, Jude specifically mentions how they indulged in sexual immorality, which is a blanket term that would certainly include a lot more than homosexuality, though the term unnatural desires seems to be drawing a contrast or underlining a particular sexual immorality that was different than God's design. Sodom, then, was destroyed because of their ungodliness and as a foreshadowing of eternal uh, judgment that was to come. Now, the activities were outside of God's design, and Jude specifically underlines unnatural desires as being a reason for their condemnation. Now, another place that we could look is in the, Le in the Levitical law. And there's two passages that I want us to look at here. The first is Leviticus chapter 18, verse 22. It says, You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. And then Leviticus chapter 20, verse 13 says, If a man lies with a male as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. Now, I want to point out something particularly about the second verse. We might be tempted to say that the law was speaking out against, you know, a particular type of forced homosexual relationships. But the law specifically says that both are condemned for their actions. And so even consensual homosexual relationships are forbidden with this verse. Another point of clarity that the use of this word abomination is not particular to only sexual sins or when speaking against homosexuality. Elsewhere, Leviticus describes murder, pride, and even deceitful speech as abominations. All of these are sins that are hated by God. And so, what is clear is that Leviticus specifically is teaching that homosexual activity is against God's design for human sexuality. Now, I want to pause here for a moment and address an objection. A natural rebuttal to this teaching from Leviticus is that it's an Old Testament law, and Christians today are living under the New Covenant. Leviticus also says that we shouldn't charge interest on a loan, or wear clothes made with two different materials, or eat bacon. So, Christians openly practice these, so we don't see that part of the Levitical law as binding. So, isn't holding to these views on homosexuality a little hypocritical? How can you just pick and choose which laws to hold on to? Well, to begin with, we need to see that we aren't choosing what to ignore. In fact, in Matthew 5, uh, verses 17 and 18, Jesus makes clear that he isn't abolishing the law, but he's actually come to fulfill it. So, our default stance should be that anything that was in God's law is still applicable. But Jesus did bring about some changes. In Mark chapter 7, he declared that all foods should be clean. Uh, the complete nature of the holy days, the system of the temple and the priest and the sacrifices, they've now been superseded by himself. 
So Kevin DeYoung sum, sums it up this way. He says, every law in the Old Testament reveals something about God's character and the nature of our obedience. If the underlying principle from Leviticus 18.22 and uh, chapter 20, verse 13 is something other than God does not approve of homosexual behavior, then that needs to be proven from Scripture, not simply asserted based on a casual dismissal of Old Testament instructions. And so, to that point, almost the entirety of the sexual ethic of Leviticus 18 and 20 is affirmed in the New Testament. And so, it would seem very strange to only say that the ones that were addressing homosexual practices are no longer valid. Now, the next place for us to look in the Bible for what it says about homosexuality is Romans chapter 1, specifically verses 18 through 32. Now, it's a little bit longer passage, but let me read for you a few verses beginning in verse 26. It says, For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Now, a couple of things to note from Romans chapter 1. First, a common rebuttal is that Roman culture had a large number of men that were with boys' uh, relationships, so some older men and younger boys. And so therefore, any condemnation against homosexuality is really directed at those particular relationships. But in these verses, the Apostle Paul is writing how men were turning from natural relationships, but also that women were doing the same thing. So it seems unlikely that he's only calling out these one type of uh, homosexual relationships that were more common in, in the Roman Empire at that time. But second, note how it describes how they were giving up of a natural relations and instead taking up those that are contrary to nature. So put another way, homosexuality is unnatural to God's design. Verses 18 and 19 talk about how the unrighteous are suppressing the truth and that God's truth can be, can be plainly seen. So consider that a fundamental design aspect of sex is for procreation. Now, even with all of the advances with modern medicine, it still isn't possible for two women to bear a child without sperm to be introduced at, same point, at some point. But likewise, two men are not capable of having a baby as neither one of them has a womb. So the relations with one another are not natural to their design. Now, some might say, but I was born with desires for someone of the same sex. So what, what I'm experiencing is really my natural response. Some would even say, this is how God made me. And to start with this last phrase, I think that even our discussion of Genesis 2 shows that God's design of women and men were to be very much alike in their humanness, but decidedly different, but in a complementary way. Later in Romans chapter 5, we'll see that because of the sin of, you know, of Adam's sin, um, that this sin has spread to everyone. So therefore, the nature that we experience is not the nature that God intended it to be. Jeremiah 17 verse 9 tells us that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. If you're relying on your feelings to determine right and wrong, then your feelings are most certainly deceiving you. Now, those that experience same-sex attraction don't do so because God created them that way any more than the person who constantly desires to be angry 
could say that God simply made them an angry person. Both are sin. But this leads me to the last verse that I want to consider, and this is 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9-11. through 11. This is what the, the scriptures say. It says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So all sin is unrighteousness. And those that practice it won't inherit the kingdom of God. But yet, verse 11 says that Jesus Christ still washes. He sanctifies and he justifies all of these. In the list, there were thieves and drunkards and those that were sexually immoral, which he must have in mind those that were having more of a heterosexual uh, sexual immorality, because he also specifically mentions men who practice homosexuality. But all of these sins can be escaped from through Jesus Christ. So, for some, the temptation for sexual immorality are directed towards the opposite sex of themselves. And for others, the temptation for sexual immorality are of the same sex. But I heard John Piper put it this way. He says, all temptations and desires give us a choice. We either sin with, with it, or we make it holy and we move it into something God-appointed. What he is saying is that there's always a choice of whether to sin or not with our temptations and desires. Yet, God promises a few chapters later in 1 Corinthians, in chapter 10, that he would provide a way out. So, in short, the Bible simply doesn't affirm that because you experience same-sex attraction or homosexual, homosexual desires that it is then acceptable. In fact, the opposite is true. The Bible's teaching that because of the deceitfulness of sin, your heart or your feelings can't be trusted, but that there is no unrighteousness that is still beyond redemption by Jesus Christ. Now, before we conclude, I want to address one more argument that is made for homosexuality. Now, the issue is one of faithfulness and commitment. The question would go something like this. Isn't God's design for marriage really that two people would be in a lifelong monogamous relationship? If those two love each other and they're committed to one another in marriage, then how can homosexuality be wrong? Now, if this argument is trying to be faithful to God's word, then it is interpreting that the thing God most desired was commitment and faithfulness in marriage, more than the complementary differences that were created when he made both men and women. And so, to uphold this argument, we would need to deny every scripture that we've already been looking at as well. But let's look at an, a biblical example from just a chapter back in 1 Corinthians, back in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Now, here the Apostle Paul brings to the attention of the church that one of the men was sleeping with his stepmother, his father's wife. Now, Paul can't believe that the church isn't concerned by this. He immediately says that the man should be removed from the church as it isn't consistent with the Bible standards. But notice what's missing from Paul's words. He doesn't first ask, you know, I've heard this man is sleeping with his stepmother. Are they committed to one another? And are they going to continue to be faithful? I mean, do they truly love each other? 
No, he says this completely goes against a Christian sexual ethic. Sam Albury writes, he says, Consistency and faithfulness while sinning in no way diminishes the sin. Consistency and faithfulness while sinning in no way diminishes the sin. He uses an example that I think is too good not to share. He says, Imagine a man that is fiercely loyal to his gang. His faithfulness and commitment are unquestioned. He participates eagerly every time that his gang goes to steal from local stores. This man's loyalty to those that he is stealing with in no way diminishes the fact that they're stealing from others and that that's wrong. And so what I've wanted us to see is that the Bible consistently shows that homosexuality is in conflict with biblical truth. It's not natural and it does not align with God's design of us. Approving of homosexuality when it is inside of a committed marriage only makes excuses for sin. But I do want to say that equally important to this discussion is that experiencing same-sex attraction is not a sin, just as a heterosexual attraction is not a sin. But the temptations and desires give us a choice to sin or or to pursue holiness. God has made his created design for marriage and sexuality clear in his word. We then have to decide whether to follow our hearts and our feelings or to follow God's design. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's discussion around what does the Bible say about homosexuality? Glad you could join us at the King's Table. If you'd like more information or resources from King's Hill Church, you can visit us online at www.kingshillboston.com.